0: when I started off as a designer, the internet wasn't yet ubiquitous. And so when we thought about social justice, we thought about posters and messaging and a variety of things. But when the internet reached the point where over half of humanity had access, it dawned on me that accessibility was perhaps the biggest lever we had in order to use the power of communications to to liberate the most people. You know, more people, Farhad have been liberated in the last 40 years through assistive technology than all the wars and revolutions in the history of humanity. And so I feel that because we're alive right now, that's where I enjoy focusing. I guess that's why it's important to me.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Gripe podcast. In this podcast, we learn how to grow member based organizations i'm your host farhad khan i am the ceo of gripe digital we are a digital agency and we help professional associations grow their membership with digital marketing and by building membership portals if you want to grow the membership of your professional association please take a look at the workshops on our website at gripe.ca/workshops that is g r y p e.ca/workshops We are recording this podcast episode live. So if you're joining us live today, welcome. We will be taking a few questions from the audience as well. So if you do have a question, please submit your question on chat and we will pick up your questions as soon as we can. Today we are joined with David Berman. David is is an expert of web accessibility and he's an author, he's a consultant, and uh, he's also a special advisor of web accessibility with the United Nations. With that, let's welcome David. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you start by telling us a bit about yourself and your work?
0: Certainly, I'm delighted to be here. And um, sure, I, I've worked with governments and associations and companies on five continents, making their websites, their documents, their apps accessible. And I can tell you that every communication professional I've worked with or every, every board member of any association I've been on starts off being Afraid that accessibility is something that's gonna be expensive and that their product's gonna get compromised, it's gonna suck once they've made it work for everyone. And what I've learned though, it is because my background is being a designer, is that although I was first when I first started out, I was a bit terrified of this as well. But I've learned that we can make every site, every portal, better for the entire audience, and in a way that typically drives down costs without trade-offs for the typical user. And I take such joy in this, that this is what we do. Uh, Me and my merry band of accessibility (laughs) professionals, we make products accessible to everyone. We help people make their products in a way that doesn't just accommodate, but delights all the members.
1: Wonderful. David, why is accessibility important to you?
0: I wrote a book called do good design and it was about how we can use design as a way together to build a more a better civilization i really believe that designing a better civilization is our common design pro uh project and when i started off as a designer the internet wasn't yet ubiquitous and so when we thought about social justice we thought about posters and messaging and a variety of things but when the Internet reached the point where over half of humanity had access, it dawned on me that accessibility was perhaps the biggest lever we had in order to use the power of communications to, to liberate the most people. You know, more people, Farhad, have been liberated in the last 40 years through assistive technology than all the wars and revolutions in the history of humanity. And so I feel that because we're alive right now, that's where I enjoy focusing. I guess that's why it's important to me.
1: Wonderful. David, so uh, I will jump right in. I guess, Oftentimes, people are not very sure if they want to make their websites more accessible. You know, then like, what are the first steps they should like take, or what are the maybe like uh, best practices that will give them the most leverage in implementing inclusive design? Uh, do you have any thoughts on the best practices or the most effective practices? I guess that gives you the highest return.
0: Well, that's a great question. The challenge is that the answer differs from site to site, from app to app, from document to document. So, for example. If a a website or a portal is highly interactive, if it's highly transactional, then the most important things to do to make it work for everyone is are very different than the techniques you'd highlight if it was simply an informational site or a a marketing site. probably the most important thing that everyone could do that takes the least effort would be to make focus visible. And by making focus visible, what I mean is that as you, as you, you open up your website and put your mouse aside and hit the tab button, because now you're simulating what it's like for someone who can see, but maybe has a mobility challenge, so they can't use a pointing device. Now you can see if they can see where the focus is. And if, as you, as you tab, 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 tab through your site, if you can see where the focus is, assuming you're a, typical user who's sighted, then you've made your focus visible. And if your focus isn't visible, if you can't see where the cursor is, so to speak, it takes about two minutes of coding, one tweak to to your CSS to make focus visible throughout the site. It may not be the prettiest approach, but it's the quickest fix that anyone can do to a site. So focus visible would be my first technique, no matter what kind of site it is.
1: Right. Um, David, I guess a lot of times we hear from our audience or our clients, for example, to uh, like, uh, and they say that, like, you know what, we don't actually like have a lot of uh, users who are who, who have a disability or something, right. So uh, And then like, I, I tell them, have you actually done a survey or a needs analysis to see if anyone needs any assistive technologies? And they say no, then I tell them, okay, so then how do you know that you don't actually have anyone in your audience who will need assistance. So if we were to go about doing some needs analysis, you know, on like what assistive or maybe what uh, inclusive design practices we should include, like how would you go about doing that?
0: Well, before I talk about the needs analysis, I'd like to question the assumption that any given association doesn't have a significant number of audience members who live with, or living with disabilities. It reminds me of before there were curb cuts in sidewalks. You know, when you walk outside in here in our Ottawa or in Ontario or pretty well everywhere in North America, you'll find that the sidewalks have curb cuts that allow a wheelchair to get onto them. But there was a time, 35 years ago, where curb cuts weren't ubiquitous because politicians who were asked to spend millions of dollars cutting little chunks of cement out were saying, oh, there's no one in wheelchairs on our streets. These quote-unquote sad people locked up in their apartments. They don't need this, so why should we bother? Well, of course, the reason there was no one in the streets is because the curb cuts weren't there. And once the curb cuts were done, not only did people in scooters and wheelchairs enjoy them, but everyone with a suitcase, everyone with a stroller, everyone dragging groceries behind them, you'd never get the curb cuts away. And, And the reason I'm focusing on that example is because... It reminds us also that not only do we have a much larger audience living with disabilities than we probably think, but also when we design for the extremes and we do it well, we actually improve our user experience for all our users, everyone who uses the sidewalks or everyone who uses the website. So I'm not sure if you need the needs analysis because we could probably demonstrate that every one of us at least has disabilities that are temporary that we t- can take advantage of, of the accessibility, mm. um, uh, the improvements we make in the sites.
1: Right, right, makes sense. Um, so I guess like uh, David, when when I was thinking about this, um, uh, 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 what I was thinking really is that um, should, if our audience actually has um, some members who are possibly older, who actually has a visual impair- impairment or, or, or they don't actually have the best 20 vision, right? So then should we focus on that? like area first, or as opposed to someone with a hearing disability, should we focus on that more? If given the choice, how would you go about implementing some of the features and not the others? Or is there no compromise at all?
0: Well, fair enough. Everyone only has so much time and so much budget. And so you do have to allocate your resources carefully. You know, what? we all have everyone ages. And we'd like to think we'll all live to a ripe old age. And there's no question that as our age increases, we acquire uh, disabilities and challenges. We lose some of our abilities. Conveniently, some of the wealthiest audience members we have are those who are perhaps hmm. not as able as they once were. And so accommodating, uh, We when when people talk about visual, or they, they tend to think about people who are blind since birth. And the, the reality is that less than 8% of people living with a, a visual impairment are blind. 92% of them have all sorts of uh, less dramatic, less complete situations, whether it's uh, their vision is poor, they wear glasses, they have contact lenses, they, they're, they're color blind, or there's all sorts of, of visual challenges. And in fact, um, the majority of people who are legally blind have some vision. So it's a continuum, and everyone over the age of 50 actually has some level of, of deficit. Uh, they don't maybe notice it because it comes to slow, slow march, but we know that the, the way the eye works, it uh, it slowly gets foggier over time. And so th- th- we have to split that conversation into two parts. The things we do to make people who have who are visual? Mm. They think visually, make it make sure that they can see everything, that they can perceive everything, and then we have the group who can't see at all, and therefore are relying on on sound or touch in order to get information from you and interact with you, and that that can be the most challenging part of uh, the web development or the app development changes to make sure it works that everything can be. Announced.
1: David, yeah.
0: So, balancing against someone with an auditory challenge, well, if you don't have any multimedia on your site, it's not really an issue because the person who can't hear, uh, there's no material to work with. Typically, when we're talking about auditory challenges, we're usually talking about making sure your videos uh, have excellent captions. And that's becoming easier and easier as AI engines make it easier and easier to draft pretty good captions. It's become pretty easy to create. Really good captions. So I wouldn't say choose one or the other. I just attack them each to whatever degree it's feasible or to whatever degree you're required by law.
1: Makes sense. David, another thing that we come across every now and then is that uh, people with disability are actually like often shy to self-identify you know and then as a as a result uh we cannot take the necessary action to actually help them out and this actually happened with one of our clients at one point so the client that we were working with was colorblind and then we did not know that and he never uh shared that with us so the designs and everything that we shared with him uh he, he could not see color and we did not know until very late like i think the project started um, uh, second design iteration. That's when someone from their team told us, hey, you know what, that particular person uh, is, uh, is colorblind. So be careful, like whatever colors you're putting out. So how can we uh, make it more inclusive for them to actually self-identify and share their situation with us?
0: Two prongs on this one. So first of all, some people aren't comfortable mm-hmm. sharing. It's a privacy issue. They don't necessarily want to share everything about themselves. On the other hand, I know lots of people living with disabilities that love to tell you about their situation. It's, you know, people with living with disabilities are as varied as anyone else. Uh, I, myself, have a substantial color deficit, but as a graphic designer, I was terrified to let anyone know that I couldn't see colors the way they did. Um, it wasn't until about 15 years ago that I just came out, so to speak, as a colorblind graphic designer. And, and so, and now I'm kind of proud of it, to say, yeah, Th- this, this is not a really big problem. So with respect to how to solve the challenge you just described, I wouldn't even be necessarily identifying users. I'd know that 10% of the male audience of my site mm-hmm. has some level of color deficit, and that's the way it is. We don't have to ask them. And conveniently, we have tools uh, such as the Color Contrast Analyzer. Color Contrast Analyzer, you can Google that, which is a free tool which can let anyone so even if you have typical vision the color contrast analyzer will will sh- will compare your foreground and background colors for you and tell you if there are contrast enough so that people with color deficits will still be able to perceive all your information the thing is when any user prints out a page on your website and they print it to a black and white printer because they they're out a color toner they don't want to print everything in color they have a temporary deficit so when you make sure that the color schemes work for people with color deficits you're also making sure your message is going to communicate well, well to all the, um, there's an international standard uh, Radha, and I know you're aware of it WCAG and for technical standards such as how much color contrast is enough conveniently we have a very specific number and you know as long as you meet or exceed that You've, you've, um, you've figured it out so I'm giving you pushback on. I don't think you have to survey your audience to find out how many people have color deficits however, it doesn't mean that it wouldn't be valuable to survey your audience regarding other uh, conditions or, uh, or ways they are differently abled depending on what type of organization you are
1: makes sense, makes sense David, this comes up again and again how do we do accessible design on a limited budget do you have any thoughts on that?
0: yeah, I do What we found is except for two exceptions, if we're creating a site from scratch that we can either we can we can make a site accessible without trade-offs for the typical user without increasing cost. in fact, in some ways the discipline required to develop a site accessibly actually drives down costs because it forces your dev team and your writers and your 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 um, content owners to, to be more methodical because the way you get the true payoff with inclusive design is by baking in the inclusivity from step zero because there's no question that if you take an existing site and you say okay let's retrofit this that it's going to expensive and it's gonna take a lot of time it's going to be painful and as well it's you're going to get mediocre results it's like if there's a 150 year old hospital and you realize to make it accessible we have to add a ramp we have to replace the elevators well if the building wasn't originally designed for that then yeah it is expensive with a lot of trade-offs but if we're just developing a product like let's say we get to develop a portal from scratch and we're thinking about inclusiveness every step of the way, that we can actually do it without increasing costs at all, with possibly the exception of the cost of audio description for videos. That, i got to admit, no matter how you cut it, that's extra effort that you wouldn't normally have pursued. On the other hand, you can argue that if you have an audio description of your videos, and you allow Google to... uh, access it it means all your multimedia is so much more searchable that it's probably worth it as well
1: right so david i love the fact that you're saying that discipline required to make a website accessible makes the overall design more streamlined and much more effective in the long run i guess how do we convince developers of this
0: well let me throw it back to you <laughs> farad what was the most effective arguments you made with your dev team when you were developing sites you know i, I I saw some of your sites and some of them are, you know, very clearly, you've gone to a lot of work to make them accessible. What arguments did you find most compelling or work the best with your team? Yeah.
1: So I think uh, some a uh, philosophy that we have been following in our team for a very long time is do it right the first time, right? So anything that we do with in, in terms of like any project, any, any technology or anything, we always try to do it right the first time. And um, what we do is that like we take enough time to strategize on the technology on the content and marketing and everything else about the website, we spend so much time like on strategy that by the time we start to coding and implementation, we find that the products that we are developing are really like top notch. Um, oftentimes what we find is that like people jump to execution too soon, right? So as opposed to like um, digging inside and try to trying to find out like, what are the main challenges we have to solve? You know, like people jump to solutions like, hey, let's use this tool, let's use that tool, okay? Without knowing whether this is a problem that should be, they should be solving at all or not. So so we we actually spend a lot of time on like strategies. So with our clients, like I was saying at the beginning that we have a number of like strategies, strategy workshops for our uh, clients. So we make sure that we do enough um, strategy work right at the very beginning. And then when we get to execution, we are almost doing it right the first time. And also, uh, so this has been the biggest um, uh, thing for us, like in implementing accessible design, that if you do it right the first time, then when you come back, it won't be that difficult to make small changes or anything else. And also another thing that we find is that if you um, uh, try to do it right the first time with a, with a very good strategy, right? So then over the long term, and like you mentioned this as well, your cost actually goes down, right? So your maintenance cost goes down significantly. So these are some of the arguments that we had from our team. Do you have anything else, David?
0: Yeah, those are powerful arguments. I, I think that to add to that, I'd say that of course there's the, for some organizations, they, the law says they must conform to a certain yeah. minimum technical standard. And so part of the motivation is to avoid being sued. Um, they, as well, I, I completely agree with you about what you're saying about the strategy, especially when you're doing your communication strategy and you're defining your audience. You know, You're going to be defining your audience for a variety of reasons, not just for accessibility, but if you're thinking in terms of that as part of that, then you're going to bake... Make the thinking right in. So, for example, let's say an association would have a conspicuously large uh, proportion of their membership, let's say over the age of seventy. Well, it makes perfect sense that there's probably going to be a larger proportion of people living with disabilities, or perhaps perhaps the association's topic is about uh, inclusion or about human rights. Or let's say an association was um, um, a, uh, an advocacy association in a certain area, then it would make sense that you're going to, from the beginning, bake in more sensitivity for specific mobility challenges or audio challenges or, or cognitive challenges.
1: Right. Um, David, uh, you, think, you also... something else. Yeah. Sorry.
0: I'm... The other thing is, I find that everyone either lives with disability or they have a parent or a child or a nephew. Everyone, for everyone, at some level, it's personal, And I find that if you let your team recognize why it matters so much to some and even more to others, that's also a driver. We find once at first people in the team tend to be a bit intimidated because they're going to be declaring this as accessible. And what if someone says, you call that accessible? That's not accessible. Once they reach a level where they have the confidence to measure their work and know they haven't just met or exceeded, then they can then they can uh, let their creativity loose and really think about how can we make this truly inclusive?
1: Right. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, David, you also mentioned that if we implement accessible design, then the overall user experience for all users, uh, improve as well. Uh, do you have any examples of that or like how, how the overall uh, user experience will be improved?
0: For sure. You know, for example, and maybe the biggest pain point for all of us is, I mean, every one of us has had the experience filling in a form for something we really want. (laughs) We're trying to sign up for an organization. Like you're laughing, right? You're already picturing it. Everyone in the audience, imagine a form in the last week that you were frustrated with. You were trying to buy something you just couldn't or you're trying to subscribe. Well, 99% of those situations are forms that fail WCAG. Success criteria for for accessible interaction, and you know the probably the most important thing you want in your website is to reduce form abandonment. So that you know that's a critical business metric, and one of the, mo- the probably the most powerful way the basics of reducing form abandonment is to follow the WCAG standards for how to create uh, interactive fields, proper error messages, proper warnings. All those things have been codified. So chances are, when you find a form delightful, it's a form that's fully accessible.
1: Right, right. David, so you mentioned WCAG a few times. Uh, uh, For our audience who doesn't know what WCAG is, can you give them a quick example of what WCAG is and how we can actually use it?
0: Oh, absolutely. Very conveniently, there is only truly one global standard, technical standards for e-accessibility, that is for websites or web-based applications. It's called the Web Content Accessibility Guidelines published by the W3C. The W3C is the World Wide Web Consortium that publishes almost all the standards we all follow, from CSS to HTML, all these standards are developed by the W3C, and one of those standards is WCAG, or what the cool kids call WCAG. So WCAG, so when there's regulations, whether they're regulations from the U.S. government or the Canadian government or Ontario government, the region government, all around the world, almost every regulation you could find on the books that defines a minimum standard for e-accessibility points to the WCAG standard. The WCAG standard has, has levels, so sometimes it will point to WCAG level A, sometimes to WCAG level AA or AA, And that's what we're referring to. It's simply a set of rules, a set of rules that you need to conform to all of them to be able to declare the entire product, whether it's a website or an app or a portal, to be able to say this entire portal conforms to WCAG 2.0 AA, let's say.
1: Right, right. David, so if we were to choose between the different WCAG levels, like AA, AA, or AAA, uh, how do we decide which level we should implement?
0: Well, Ten years ago, we'd have a big, long answer to this. But today, it's pretty much we're either conforming to WCAG 2.0 AA, which is the which is the level most cited in North America in regulations, or WCAG 2.1 AA. I mentioned that WCAG has three levels, A, AA, AAA. Now, it used to be people would choose between A and AA, but since almost all regulations point to AA, that's pretty well the package we go for. 38 rules. WCAG 2.1 came out more recently, and so it's some some parts of the world cite it, it's like all the governments in the EU now cite WCAG 2.1. Conveniently, 2.1 is just 2.0 with its 38 rules with, uh, at AA with 12 more rules added. So the 38 rules were left exactly as they were. You don't have to relearn anything if you already know something about WCAG. You add 12 more rules. Most of those rules were added because the world has changed, mostly for for mobile, for touch, and some cognitive stuff. So the ideas are that they're going for 2.0 AA or 2.1 AA, We're following either 38 or 50 uh, success criteria, they're called, rules to follow. And if you follow all of them, then you've conformed. Not all of them apply to every site, so you don't necessarily have to do them all. But you have to make sure you haven't failed to conform to any of the 38 or 50. Is that deep enough?
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, David, another thing that we have come across is that sometimes, in order to like implement some accessibility features on websites, we use external tools. So some of like some of the um, uh, design has to be inclusive, like for sure to to begin with. But then like there are many other tools or plugins that we can add on the website to make the website more readable or more accessible. Uh, do you have any thoughts mm-hmm. on like using external tools as opposed to like building everything within the site?
0: Yeah, so I think it comes from two directions. So from one perspective, sometimes when we're building a site, we'll use uh, widgets or libraries that already exist you know, to avoid reinventing the wheel. So for example, let's say we were creating a, a WordPress site. We'd use, we were going to use a theme. A theme was developed probably by someone else. Now, some themes are accessible and some aren't. So we could say, if I'm going to make a site in WordPress, I might as well go choose a theme that's already been certified as accessible because now I'm starting off. Or the flip side is, unfortunately, sometimes you're working on a platform and there's a library that you really want to use. It's the only one on the planet that does just what you want. But unfortunately, sadly, the designers of that library haven't thought it through in terms of accessibility, and now you own that problem because you're going to brand that functionality and you can't make the excuse that, well, we didn't write code that, someone else did. Well, now you you may have to have a challenge there. The other end of it, um, right, uh, is, and I think maybe this is what you're referring to, is some people are marketing overlays. They'll say, oh, we'll take any website and you add this thing to it and it will make it accessible, and to a great degree, this is snake oil. It's uh, maybe it makes it technically possible for someone to somehow be able to use it, but um, many of these tools are so would be so painful to use for the person living with this a disability that they that that functionally it's it's not a proper solution. Um, they imagine they. They're creating another mode for your site to work at, but someone would have to learn how to use this overlay just to be able to access your website. Imagine if you as a typical user went to Amazon one day and it said, oh, to to use Amazon with a keyboard or a mouse, you have to use this other thing. And it was completely different than how you use a keyboard or a mouse on, let's say, another site you like, like CNN.com. Well, you'd probably just go shop somewhere else. So... Although some of these overlays do possibly could be argued that they help you fulfill a rule, a a law, um, most experts in the industry think that they're an unrealistic way of of truly creating an accessible experience.
1: Right, right. So, David, just to add...
0: But it's a very broad statement I'm making. Some, Some of these things do work in some situations.
1: Makes sense. Makes sense, yeah.
0: Is that... What you're yeah of?
1: absolutely absolutely and i guess david another uh, scenario that we came across is that if we do have to use a tool then we have to really understand what gap you're trying to fill with that tool so having a clear understanding that like oh you, you know what we did the website but we missed this area and maybe this tool fills that one gap and uh maybe um if we implemented that tool maybe 80 percent of the gap will be filled So in cases like that, would you prefer to fill that gap with an external tool? Or do you think the external like tools are usually not that effective?
0: Well, let me, let me draw an analogy, which maybe is easier to visualize, especially for those in our audience who don't code. If I go into Microsoft word and I have a document and not just like throwing a whole bunch of notes together, and I'm kind of trying to finish up an article Mm. about whatever I can run the spell checker and it will catch most of the spelling mistakes. I can even run the grammar checker and it will catch it will help a lot. But would you actually publish the article without having someone actually read it for content, to actually read it over and proofread it? The re- you of course not. You would you need humans to check it to make sure it actually expresses what you want to express. So, there are a lot of amazing technologies out there that will help Uh, help detect if your site, do automated checks to see if your site is accessible. And many of them can even suggest ways to fix these problems. But the reality is that we do a lot of work auditing people's websites. It's very typical that we'll we'll, we'll find every accessibility failure in a site and then we'll provide recommendations on how to close each gap. And sometimes we'll provide a number of different recommendations because we want to not just provide one, we want to provide the very best, most efficient, most cost-saving, most sustainable way. But the thing is that we use the automated tools when we can, but 80% of our effort is manual. Uh, people who understand have to go through the product and discover is it truly going to be usable by everyone. And ultimately, when you were talking about needs analysis, I'd almost rather you'd invest that effort and that budget in access, in usability testing like you should always do usability testing, but usability testing specifically with with the extreme user, with a, a person who is legally blind, with a person who can't hear, with a person who can't use a mouse. Um, and we could go deeper about the framework of how to do usability testing for accessibility, but I think the kind of feedback you get from that uh, may be more valuable if you could only afford that versus afford doing a... A study on who your audience is in terms of their how are able they are that may be the more effective place to invest.
1: Right, right, um, David. Now. Think of a hypothetical client or, or an organization who already has a website, which was probably designed a couple of years back, and they do not actually have the budget to redesign the whole website right now. But they, but uh, given given the global pandemic, they're realizing that a lot more users are actually accessing their organization's website from home. And like so their audience essentially expanded, right? Who was not part of the audience before is now part of their audience. And as a result, they need to maybe do uh, some tweaks on the website or make minor improvements to make it more accessible so for um, fixes like that where would you start
0: we'd start with that's a that's a that's a very common situation it's understandable on one hand we want to have one foot firmly in the idealism of let's create a product that's awesome for everyone but on the other hand we have to be pragmatic if we know that we're going to be redesigning that product from scratch let's say, 36 months out, but the existing product needs to be accessible now, we'll be more pragmatic about how much to invest in it now, with the same the plan being that when we rebuild it from scratch, we're going to go truly deep and be truly awesome and exceed the standards rather than just meet the standards. So the starting point is still the same. What we do is we uh, find someone with the competency to study the existing product, to find every place where there is a WCAG 2.0 AA or 2.1 AA gap, to list those issues, to figure out how we're going to resolve them, and simply sequence them. If the team needs coaching, then we we coach the team. Uh, But ultimately, we want to make sure that we can at least... uh, close the gaps to a point where everyone can use the product. It may may not be delightful for everyone, but at least everyone can get all the top tasks done. So we would prioritize them based on top tasks. And then at the same time, as we're building our, our game plan for the redesign, we're going to be taking into account everything we learned in that. It's unfortunate if a given dev team has their first accessibility rodeo being remediating an existing product, it's a lot easier if the first time you have to do this, it's on a new product. So for example, I'm thinking, Farad, if you have like three, three big projects on your desk, and people are going to learn how to do this well the first time, if you have the choice to give them the project where they're designing from scratch, that's a far better way to learn how to do this well than to throw them at more challenging thing of you know remediating the 150 year old building rather than designing a fresh shiny new one with new parts
1: right so yeah so david a follow-up question to that since a lot of our audience for the podcast and our clients are professional associations and associations have a have a number of like member benefits that they want to deliver to their members so if there was one advice for your association executives you know like to make their services and benefits more accessible like what advice would you give them
0: well, there's a lot to unpack there because I'm thinking about an association. You know, it's everything from your marketing to drive new membership, uh, to continuously provide value, to you probably have events um, post pandemic. They go back to being um, uh, in person. Uh, uh, perhaps they'll, now they'll be hybrid. But every one of these aspects requires its own strategy. So, for example, let's say you provide certification to your association members, think about is the certificate you're sending actually accessible for everyone? Is it available in Braille for someone who wants to be able to use tactile to understand it? Is it? available? Are your documents available in an accessible format? For example, let's say you're publishing a lot of PDF files of the, the code of the association. Are they available in a format that everyone can perceive them? You've got to break it down to a lot of pieces. Just online meetings, for example, we've been doing a lot of work lately on how to develop how to make an online event more accessible whether it's an informal meeting or it's a podcast like this one or that event is um is a formal board of directors meeting of you know the annual meeting of the association how do you make those events not just accessible but but delightful and inclusive uh, for everyone you really have to look at it from a variety of angles when we get back to the in-person conferences for example one of the, we, we, like I wrote a, I wrote a piece on this, and one wh- one of the things that people uh, have the aha most often is the idea that they tend to focus on how accessible the actual event is, but not be thinking of the registration form, the the making sure that the speakers are briefed eight weeks in advance to make sure they know how to make sure that their slides are accessible. So if someone wants a copy afterwards, that everyone's gonna be able to use them. It takes a lot of forward planning and the first time it may seem daunting the first time it may seem overwhelming but it's a habit and you start thinking about inclusion every step of the way and it gets easier and better and before you know it you're just you're just being inclusive by default and you're discovering that you get what we call the accessibility dividend that you actually start driving down costs and getting more members and delighting more people and discovering that the small thing you did the that the adding captions to the meeting that you did for that, one person who asked for it, and the five people who didn't, suddenly everyone likes captions, everyone wanders off to get tea in the middle of a meeting and comes back and wants to cap, catch up on what was said while well, they had stepped away. We find that when we design for the extremes and we do it well, that everyone benefits and no one wants to turn back from that. You know, i found in my own work, uh, I've, I've I found the very tools we use every day uh, have changed just because we're in it so much. You know, so for example, in order to make sure that um, that a deaf colleague was able to participate in online meetings, we discovered, you know, we we got we got very focused on using captions in ways that people hadn't thought of using before. And then we found ourselves sharing our techniques. Or um, here, here's an here's an example. You know, we're all trying to multitask, and I, I remembering that. Uh, uh, this is a this is a foot pedal.
1: Yeah.
0: It's a, this is a $19 thing on eBay, and it and this is my my left click, and my right click, and I originally was using this because we knew someone who was using it to navigate their keyboard. But I discovered when doing power PowerPoint presentations, I can advance the slides using a foot pedal. Now, why wouldn't everyone be advancing their slides, next slide, back slide, using the foot pedal? And so. You start finding that all of these um, assistive technologies uh, are are have become a big part of our lives. So, you know, I, I wanted to figure out because I'm a bit of a workaholic sometimes. So I'm I'm on the I'm on the electrical trainer, but I want to convince myself, no, I can catch up on my email on the electrical trainer. <laughs> well, that's when I learned how to use voice recognition to navigate Windows because. I wanted to do both those things in place. So you're almost giving yourself a temporary deficit, and then you learn how to get around it, and you realize in your common days you're still using those techniques and those technologies, and the awareness you gain is for free. It's easier for you to imagine what it's like to um, live 24-7 with a particular challenge.
1: Those are some wonderful examples, David, I want to add one uh, to that as well. So a couple of months back, actually middle of last week, I had a wrist injury on my right hand. And after that I could not type, I could not use the mouse at all. And what ended up happening is that like I was using my left hand for everything during that time, mouse and keyboard. And uh, I was using my left hand so much that, that I injured my left hand as well. So for, there was a, there was a duration, you know, when I couldn't use any hand at all, right? So uh, so what I ended up doing is I, I started using all the accessibility features on on my Mac and then I used like voice comments a lot and I realized, oh my God, voice comments are so effective and they're so much faster for writing emails, for doing so many things. So even when my yeah. like wrists like came back, you know, I now use voice comments all the time. <laughs> you know, so that was That's such fantastic. an amazing finding for me.
0: So you, you find it's even though your wrists are now all healed, it's become part of how you work. You, you've you gained this
1: ability that you still use it every day. Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Oh, that's fantastic.
1: <laughs> All right, uh, David, we have a few questions from the audience. So these questions were submitted mm-hmm. when the audience signed up for the event. And uh, by the way, if you are joining the event live, if you have any more questions, please uh, submit your questions on chat and we will pick them up as soon as we can. So I'll go to the questions that were submitted online. So this question is from Holly Smyth. Um, How can we make a design artistic uh, while still being accessible?
0: It's a great question. And designers are understandably often terrified that they're going to lose the nuance and the drama and the humor and the, the clout of their message because they fear that they're going to have to compromise the quality of the message in order to make it kind of a lowest common denominator approach. However, the good news is we don't have to compromise at all. We've I can we could if we had more time, I could show example after example, before and after examples of sites where by making it accessible and doing it in a way that resists trade offs. We are that every change we make to make the product work for everyone either is completely invisible to the typical user. Like, everything just seems the same as it was before. It doesn't, until you plug in a, um, here, this is a, I'll show you this. This is fun. This is a lip sync. I'll explain it in a moment. Um, It works exactly as it was before, and only if you're using an assistive technology would you know that things were better. Or the changes that are apparent are better for all users. The color schemes have been made higher contrast, and they look even better. And everyone finds them easier to use, even in a smoky room or they're a little bit drunk or they're <laughs> distracted because they're listening to something in the background. It's easier for their brain to not abandon the task because the color scheme works better for all human brains, not just those that are, that are, are more in the, in the extreme case. So I, I challenge uh, the, 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 the questioner to show me the example of a design that we can't make accessible with no trade-offs uh contact me like you know uh david at DavidBurma.com, send me that and we'll find you a way there's always a way look this device for can i show you this
1: sure please go ahead
0: so this is called a lip sync and it's it's designed in canada um and this is imagine imagine if if you were uh quadriplegic which means you'd have no use of your limbs below your neck or very right. limited use of your limbs, and um, and but you wanted to be able to use uh, any website or any WCAG compliant website, conformant website. So what this is is a device that um, it's a USB-C device. I can I can take my 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 Samsung phone. I can plug in this USB-C connector into it, and now I can actually navigate the site using just my mouth in this way because the idea is the lip sync allows you to use the surface area of your lips uh. Uh, as a pointing device and then by blowing on the tube it's like a left click uh, by sucking on the tube that's a right click now imagine that this this arm is let's say attached to the to a, a, a scooter who because someone with a mobility challenge maybe in a, a motorized scooter and so to navigate any site that's WCAG 2.0 AA conformant, they can use this. Now, imagine an on-screen keyboard. So you can also use that to navigate the mouse to any key on the key Um. on the screen. And for those who can't see this, what I'm doing is I'm showing this device called a lip sync. And it's mounted on an arm. It's about five inches long and about two inches wide. And it looks like kind of a little blender. A little, <laughs> sorry, a little mixer you'd use to, to make sh- uh, milkshakes. But it's got this plastic tube pointing towards my mouth. And by putting my mouth on the tube and just gently moving the tube along my lips, uh. I can make it, it w- operate like a pointing device. But here's the really cool thing about the lip sync designed by Canada's Neil Squire Society. This is 3D printed. You can print your own for $300. Using a off-the-shelf Arduino board and all the other parts are off-the-shelf parts. So, for instance, I was in uh, I was in Islamabad in Pakistan, and we were talking about how to make uh, government websites more accessible. And I showed the lip sync, and they said, "Well, that's great, but how can we get these lip syncs all the way over here?" And I said, "You can three D print them. You just need the you just need the, the 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 parts." So it's an example of how assistive technologies aren't just becoming more ubiquitous and more usable, but they're becoming also economically accessible. A device that could do this magic for someone maybe five years ago could cost $5,000, and now it costs $300. So there you go. But the website doesn't have to be compromised in terms of its visual presentation in order for everyone to be able to use it.
1: Wonderful, David. Maybe
0: that was a long answer. I'm sorry for it.
1: Yeah, no worries at all. We have a question from the audience, from the live <laughs> audience, and his name happens to be David as well. So, question from David: um, uh, We would like to include um, students with disabilities more during our development stage of the project, the websites or anything else. How can we more include? So, this is from the library, a- academic library in Ontario. So, how can we include students with disabilities at the very beginning? in the development stages as opposed to in the end when we were already in testing phase and it's too late to implement anything new?
0: That's a great question because the idea that the earlier you include people in every step of the process, the better the product's going to be. And so if I can just go sideways a moment on a simpler project, imagine if you're creating a document, just a Word document. Maybe it has a few photographs, and eventually it's going to be a PDF file. Well, one approach is to wait till the things all complete and then hand it to someone and say, make this document accessible. And that's a nice thing to do, but we've excluded people living with disabilities from a whole series of steps in the document production process. Don't we want a workplace where everyone can write content? Everyone can put images in? Everyone can can contribute to every step of the process. Well, if the document isn't accessible until we're ready to publish it, then we've excluded a lot of people from all the steps involved in, in, in conceptualizing it and designing it and perfecting it and quality assuring it. So, th- the more complex version of that is, back to this example of, uh, if we have, let's say, a, a library you a university, How can we, and we're developing a new website, and it's going to be highly interactive because, of course, there's all sorts of interactions that go on in a library. How can we include uh, people living with disabilities in the process? Well, the ultimate thing is to have such an inclusive workplace that naturally people living with disabilities would be part of your development team every step of the way. But I think the question really is about how can we make sure user testing starts happening as early as possible. And just like any great uh, process of developing any type of, uh, of, of, of site or application, there are points that any usability expert would say. These are the points in our process where we're going to do user, user testing with typical users as well as atypical users to make sure it's great. So in the same way, we early on one would test one's navigation while we're still wireframing before we bother writing any code. Mm. We include users uh, living with disabilities in those processes, so we make sure that the navigation makes sense, the design phrase framework makes sense every step of the way we're just simply making sure we do that testing. Now some of the stuff, some of the magic, the truly nerdy stuff that let's see is going to make sure that the lip-sync is also going to be able to navigate your site, some of that really doesn't come in until we're coding because there are standing coding techniques. They're not going to change the look and feel of the site at all uh, whereas others would. So it's a, it's a complicated answer Uh, But overall, the takeaway is include a truly diverse audience in every step of user testing. And as always, start your usability testing as early in the process as you can if you want a great product rather than just a good enough product.
1: Right, right. David, I want to add to that as well. So this actually happened in one of our projects earlier where we, we had a lot of like accessibility requirements and um and in, in, in that case what we ended up doing is that we actually like hired an accessibility accessibility consultant who had a visual impairment himself. Right. So we hired him and then we made him part of the requirement gathering phase itself, so not not towards the end, but at the very beginning when we were writing the requirements and creating all the strategies. so um and, but, like yeah, we need to make sure that the person we are in, involving in the requirement uh, phase is uh someone who has some web experience and maybe if if he has some impairment as well, then that's better that way he can actually leave all the requirements and all the issues like firsthand. So that has been our experience. Um, I know that like, if you are, if you are working with, uh, students in a campus, not all students will actually have the same level of experience with web. So I guess in that case, maybe find someone who has the most experience in web, maybe a hobby, uh, like hobby web designer or someone who has done some web design before. And if you can help out in the requirement phase early on, then I think that that might help as well.
0: I think great. That's really smart when we're designing usability testing specifically for people uh, that includes people uh what we call the the super users uh people with lived experience what we'll do is typically actually we'll refine that we'll say if we're going to make sure we have someone uh, who's blind or with a or low vision we'll 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 have the blind person who is a nerd who really knows code well enough that they could get around the problem and move beyond it. But you also very intentionally include what we call the naive blind user, who is just a more typical person who doesn't know code, who just knows what it's like to try to use the product. And we'll do that same pairing again if we're uh, testing... Uh, with uh, a deaf or hard of hearing audience. We'll have one person who really knows their stuff and knows how to get around bad captioning and recognize it, and knows how to fix it. But we're also using the naive typical user who doesn't know how the sausage is made. They just know what good sausage is like, you know, to, to mix my metaphors. And so it is with mobility challenges, with low vision, with certain cognitive, we tend to pair it. So we always have the expert user with a typical type of lived experience as well as the naive user and if you test with both you both dis- you discover the different types of hurdles and it's the same thing you do with typical users you want you, you get your advanced people and you get your newbies and it's the, it's the same uh the same model approaches
1: Alrighty, righty um i have another question from another david or probably the same david uh this is from david kemper um, he was asking, what are some concrete steps that we can take to make sure that all of our web properties are accessible? Some concrete steps that we can take today?
0: Well, the most concrete step typically is a formal conformance analysis of the product by a, a team, either someone on your, on, your, on your team who has the expertise and experience to be able to find all the problems or you bring in uh, an outside expert who focuses on that. By doing a full conformance analysis, it's really the only way of making sure that you've discovered all of the gaps so that you can then go about uh, closing every one of them. Now beyond that, then the second most common thing that's done is functional accessibility testing because you can make a product that passes every WCAG success criteria, but still it may be rather mediocre in terms of how usable it actually is. And so the next place is we go to pretty much the usability testing we've been talking about but in a formal way so formal usability testing top tasks counting how many seconds it takes for someone to succeed or or abandon then use you, you know you cycle your design you try again you see can we bring that can we clock that down to a time that's reasonable we don't want any abandonment the standard approaches you take to the business of usability testing you apply to functional testing for the super user for the for for the typical uh, for examples of users with certain types of lived experience.
1: All right. Next question is from Rosie Barajos. Um, Rosie is asking, what are some examples of popular websites that are also the most accessible?
0: That's a great question. What are examples of sites that are, that are accessible? Well, the W3C site is absolutely is one of the most accessible sites we'll ever find and it makes sense because they so write that's the w3c.org uh, in terms of sites that really right. yeah exactly w3c.org uh, w3c.org you know the the Canadian federal government actually has a lot to be proud of in terms of canada.ca because not only was canada the first national government in the world to make it against the law to publish a public facing page that didn't conform to what was then WCAG 1.0. But they were able, they did it in a way where there was a common look and feel across all of the departments. And it wasn't so perfect at first, but over the years, it's gotten better and better and better. And so often I find when I'm running one of my courses, whether it's accessible forms design or it's accessible web applications or accessible documents, time and time again, we go back to showing off the the toolkit, which is... um, to some degree, crowdsourced that, that drives the Canada.ca site. And the reason I'm focusing on it is this: if you go to UK.org, which is another amazing piece of play language, playing design, etc. Right? Some people say, although the
1: UK.gov, I'm sorry,
0: yeah. UK.gov. Thank you, Rod. Yeah, UK.gov, oh. which is the the um, the United Kingdom's public facing web presence. It's so austere. It's so simple. Some people find it. Not that interesting. But Canada.ca has gotten that mix of full accessibility uh, while keeping the drama, keeping the promotion, keeping the key messaging that has to come from certain politicians all happening. And it's not to say that UK.gov is not awesome. UK.gov is yeah. an amazing piece of work and broke, uh, broke a lot of barriers. But it's, it's so informational. So these are my examples, uh, often government. Now there's also uh, private sector clients, private sector um, uh, clients of ours, as well as sponsored clients of ours, have done some amazing work too. And I, I, I almost don't want to play favorites, but you know, it's ex- impressive. For example, if you take a site like Facebook and you couldn't recognize even like eight or nine years ago, their accessibility was very poor and uh, they have such a complexity of interaction, they were doing things that no one else had ever done before. And today, the quality of accessibility on Facebook, even if you imagine the challenge of, imagine that you can't see, and Facebook's in front of you, and you've got friends chatting at you in one thread, and, and advertisements coming you from another angle, and you were trying to watch, you were trying to consume a video, and Facebook's done a really great job using technology such as WayAria, make all of that hmm. load of information come in in a way that's controllable and um, and polite. That is, it's uh, it's sequenceable, that the user can stay in control and decide what they want to hear and what they don't want to hear. Because imagine you're hearing and feeling uh, through Braille a, Braille, a dynamic Braille display it's really impressive what some of the big ones come out. So I can I can name more, uh, but Facebook's a really good example of an extreme case of really getting it right in so many ways.
1: All right, next question is from Drew Weber. Uh, what if you have to implement accessibility features that don't quite comply with W3C guidelines? Will that ever be a case?
0: Well, well, it depends on your situation. If you're in an organization that's, that's where you're regulatory required to conform to W3C standards, such as, let's say, you were a, um, a private sector organization in Ontario with at least 50 employees, and you're talking with a public-facing site, then the law says you must be WCAG 2.0 AA conformant, except for two exceptions. So in that case, you got to do it. And it may mean you have to change your tools, redesign your tools, find a way. There's always a way. Uh, Whereas if you were a smaller organization who was doing this because you just know it's the right thing to do from a social justice perspective, it's the right thing to do because it's good for business, it's the right thing to do because you get better search, it's the right thing to do um, for a variety of reasons, then you can make compromises. You can decide that we're, we're we're going to fall a little short here, but we're going to overdo it over here. And by doing functional accessibility testing with our audience... Uh, we'll make sure that everyone can do the most important tasks and succeed at them, and we can make the business decision to what degree it's okay. Now, that's not to say that a small organization couldn't couldn't possibly be sued as a human rights violation if they were to deny someone access to a key key aspect. So I'm not saying you're off the hook in, in any situation. I have to see this situation. But sometimes we see situations where, for example, although the shortcoming is technically a violation of WCAG, a certain success criteria in WCAG, we know that based on the, the browsers or the technology or the platform the user is going to be using, that really it doesn't really matter that much to that target audience. But again, it takes an expert to know where you can cut corners and where you can't. So again, if you have a if you have a situation that you're head scratching over, I don't mind if you want to bring it to our attention and we can actually look at it and, and discover if, is, is it really a situation where you can't conform? And if not, what's a good accessible alternative to provide to users?
1: Already, Sorry. Go ahead, David.
0: Well, I was just going to say also that it's, just, it's really important, this pragmatic point. You don't have to provide every expression of a certain piece of content in an accessible way, as long as there's one way for everyone to get to it, that's fine. So let's say you had a PDF file and it's not accessible, but you warn people that, you know, we're sorry, the PDF file you're about to download is not, it only has limited accessibility. However, the very same content is available in fully accessible format over here on this HTML page or this Word file or, 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 that's completely okay. The key is you warn people before they get there, that the product, that the that the thing is not accessible, you point them to a fully accessible alternative. That's completely okay. And the W, the WCAG standard, formally describes uh, what you're allowed to do in those situations.
1: Makes sense. Makes sense. So, David, since we're running out of time, um, mm-hmm. what would be your key takeaway for our audience today?
0: Well. I guess my key takeaway is repeating something I said before, that when we design for the extremes and we do it well, that everyone benefits. You know, we talk about, we talk about membership, and we all, we all happen to be members of, well, depending on your theology, there have perhaps been 7,000 generations of human beings. And we happen to live in the first generation where it is truly possible to include everyone.
1: Mm.
0: We live in the first generation where we have the, the, the technology and the techniques. And most of us live in the wealthiest economies in the world, so we have the resources, and we have the knowledge, and we have the desire. And I really feel because we can, we must do this. Some people would say it's coincidence that we live in the 7,000th generation. And some people would say it's fate that we happen to all be members of this current generation of humanity. So as we go forward designing our future, the future of human civilization, I love the idea that all of you have find this interesting enough to spend time learning about how we can truly include everyone. And uh, for, I thank you so much for giving me the chance to, uh, to, to share this with your audience today.
1: Thank you so much for being here, David. I just have uh, two rapid fire questions for you. Mm -hmm. David, can you share a personal habit that has contributed the most to your success?
0: Huh? Well, a few years ago, here's one. A few years ago, I was hired to do some consulting on sign language. And I didn't know sign language. And so I realized that this is ridiculous for me to do this work for the government of Mexico, if I didn't know sign language. So I made it my business to learn sign language and it's changed. It's changed my life in many ways. I find my so many ways to, it's a, it's a whole other, it's a whole other podcast, but just to say, it's an example of learning a whole different way to express oneself has changed, has changed me and, and made my life more delightful, as well as, of course, making it possible for, for to help help more, more people. So does that count?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. And uh, David, can you share a tool or a strategy that makes you effective in your work?
0: I would think in general, something we touched on earlier, you talked about how the, your temporary disability of not being able to use your hands the way you usually use them, forced you to find another way to get things done. And um, in our work, we get exposed to these all the time. So, for example, um, I have a braille watch. This is a braille watch, uh. okay? and I just thought, what a cool thing—a braille watch. Uh, um, uh, my best friend gave me this as a present, and uh, but then I discovered I was learning braille because this is another thing I wanted to learn braille. Like, we should all learn braille. Learning braille is it's so much easier if you can see. Oh, by the way, so if you're sighted, <laughs> especially, you got to learn braille. So. And there I would discover it. I was wearing the Braille watch. It's the middle of the night. And I wake up and I'm wondering what time it is. But I know if I get up and go look at the clock, it's going to wake me up so much. And I discovered I could use the Braille watch to check. Oh, my gosh, it's only still 315. I feel this. And I go, okay, stay asleep, Berman, stay asleep. And that became, well, until my, until, um. Until my Google, I won't say the name of it because it'll talk to us. Uh, came along and gave me the ability to use my voice to find yeah. out what time it is. This, this be changed my life because I know what time it was in the middle of the night. It meant I could stay asleep. So I learned some tactile language. There's one of them, but so there's so many of these 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 experiences like you've described, uh, uh, for uh, that I'm sure others can come up with examples where they had a temporary disability and they discovered technology that was designed for the extremes was actually uh, enhance their day to day uh, efficiency and collaborations.
1: So I guess the message for the audience is that like uh, on your phone or on your laptop, like look for the accessibility options and see what features are there already, which you can probably use in your day to day life. Even if you do not have a disability, it will just improve your life overall. Right. Uh, David, how can people reach you if they have any questions?
0: Well, they can um, they can email me at at uh, Berman at David Berman dot com or at Twitter at David Berman, or they can contact you guys and you can send them over to me. How's that?
1: <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. David, thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And, and I want to thank Ranya actually also for for setting this up. It was uh, on your team. Rania did such an amazing job of uh, convincing me to be here and then making sure it went wonderfully.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. If you are joining this episode live or if you're watching, if you are watching or listening to the recording, uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, as always, like I said before, if you want to apply some of the ideas from this podcast or from any of our other uh, podcast episodes in your organization or in your websites, please take a look at the workshops on our website at gripe.ca slash workshops. That is Grype.ca slash workshops. All right, so that's it for today. We are wrapping up. I hope to see you again in our next episode. Bye for now.